Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Hey, Wilbur. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. There's some great analysis in Antiwar.com entitled U.S. Counting on Putin to Signal Before Using Nukes. And the author writes, hats off to Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines for her Senate May 10 testimony on the likelihood of nuclear war with Russia, even though parts of it were surreal. What does all of this mean? Well, for insight, we turn to our first guest. He works with Tell the Word, the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He served as a CIA analyst for 27 years. He's on the steering committee or steering group of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. And he's the author of this piece, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, talk a bit about uh, Avril Haines's testimony, why it's so important and why you found it to be so surreal. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And now Avril Haines is one bright woman. I mean, there's no taking away from that. Uh, she so, she showed that she has her, her head screwed on right when she pointed out over two years ago that global warming is the main problem and that it requires international help and that they can't be done alone, and so we have to cooperate with other countries. Well, hello, uh, this is the exact opposite of cooperating with other countries. This, as I've said before, is sort of the, the mother of all uh, opportunity costs, the Ukraine thing, diverting attention from global warming. Now, getting to the point at hand, she testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee on two days ago. And uh, what she said was really gratifying. I mean, gratifying in the sense that she was parroting <laughs> what we veteran intelligence professionals had declared in a letter to uh, President Biden on the 1st of May. And there were two key points. One is that Putin believes he can't lose in Ukraine, that it's a must win for him. And the other point was some, similar to that, that Putin believes he faces a existential threat. And under those conditions, as night follows the day, he's willing to consider, according to Russian doctrine, the use of nuclear weapons. Now, what was so so surprising about this is that even though Avril Haines is a real bright lady, and even though she was well rehearsed on what she needed to say when uh, Senator Mark Warner uh, not to be con confused with Senator Sean Warner, uh, apparently in Virginia we always have a, war a warmonger Warner as a sen senator, but anyhow, Mark Warner asked her about the use of nuclear weapons. And here's what she said. We don't want, uh, we're supporting Ukraine, but we also don't want to ultimately end up in World War III and we don't want to end up in a situation where actors are using nuclear weapons. Our view is there's um, there's not sort of 
there's not sort of an imminent potential for Putin to use nuclear weapons. Uh, we perceive that uh, it's unlikely he'll do that unless there is an effectively an existential threat to his regime and to Russia from his perspective. Now, we think that could be the case if he perceives that he's losing the war in Ukraine. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> okay, you have Nancy Pelosi, never mind Lindsey Graham, you have Nancy Pelosi, you have Chuck Schumer, you have the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, all saying that Russia's going to lose, we're going to see to it that Russia loses, and we just make sure that we're going to defeat Russia in Ukraine. So here's the, uh, yeah, I'm troubled by the notion that I was, that I had to take a lot of courses in logic and philosophy, okay? And here's the syllogism that comes through. Major premise, we don't want to end up with World War Three using nuclear weapons. Minor premise, Putin's going to use them if he perceives that he's losing the war in Ukraine. Conclusion, well, mercifully, intelligence officers, no matter how high they sit, are not supposed to make conclusions for policy. We leave that to the Blinkens and the Sullivans and the Bidens and the Pelosi's of this world. And the conclusion they draw is, therefore, we've got to do what it takes to make Putin perceive that he's losing in Ukraine. Hello? That's what I mean by the surreal aspect of this thing. Do we want nuclear war? Well, as night follows the day from this logic, that's what it would mean. And so what's the saving grace? No worries, fellas. No worries at all. What April Haynes also adds, and this is really peculiar, she says, look, uh, quote, there are a lot of things that Putin would do in the context of escalation before he would get to a nuclear weapon. And we also think that he would be likely to engage in some sort of signaling beyond what he has already done, end quote. Some signaling. So now April Haynes is a very bright lady, but she hasn't been around intelligence very long. Uh, so is she saying that, oh, Putin's going to uh, give Biden a call and, and, you know, leave him a voicemail saying, oh, um, Joe, just want to let you know, I'm signaling you that we're going to probably uh, nuke Finland as soon as it decides to join NATO. Just want to let you know. I mean, that's the surreal part of this whole thing. Do they really think? that they'll, they'll have forewarning if Putin, with his back to the wall, decides to use a small nuke as a demonstration, let's say in the middle of Finland, just to make sure that the Finns realize that this is very serious business. Well, here's the other thing, Ray, you know, and when we talk about nuclear war, what we're actually talking about is the end of all humankind, suicide. These aren't weapons, they're suicide pills. So what they're really doing is, Having a discuss this, it's almost like um, you know watching Sophocles and you know whoever sit around and have a discussion, a philosophical discussion about the end of humankind. Because what she doesn't bring up is this: possibly there's another option. Well, let's talk about the circumstances in which humankind would end, but possibly there's another option. 
And it appears that the option that could negate and mitigate all of these issues is sitting down with Putin and saying, hey, remember those list of demands that you gave us in December? Let's see how we can work this out so everybody's happy. And then we don't have to worry about the end of humankind. It seems to me, Ray, they'd rather contemplate the end of humankind than sit down with Vladimir Putin and work out a diplomatic solution to uh, the, the, the Russians' uh, issues with their border. Well, um, you know, Garland, it's hard for me to say whether they're just stupid. Uh, I know they're wet behind the ears. They probably have, haven't seen the movies that we're all accustomed to back 20, 30 years ago. Uh, on the beach and visual representations of what nuclear war means. And they're so stuck on themselves that they think they can uh, they can graduate this thing, make sure that eh, maybe a mini nuke, but you know, not. So, you know, I don't know what it is. What I do know is that the the scandal here is that people are getting killed in Ukraine and the U.S. has the power to stop it. That's the bottom line here. Now, April Haynes, as, as I say, is a very bright lady, but she overstepped the bounds of intelligence when she said, it looks like there's no way we can negotiate on the, on the present circumstances. The Russians are bound to, to advance and we're about. So, you know, that's not her province. That's not her province. She should have stopped there. It's a policy decision. And that's up to Biden and those sophomores that he has advising him. They have to they have to say, well, look, if this is the syllogism, you know, uh, he's going to react with a nuclear weapon if he feels threatened. Then, you know, can't we find some other way, as you, Garland, have just suggested? And that, of course, is to sit down. We sat down decades ago with really bad actors in, in the Soviet Union and we worked things out. We should be able to do that now, and the American public is just not accustomed to thinking in these terms. How much of this really stems from Foreign Minister Lavrov's statement, I guess it was last week, where he talked about uh, nuclear weapons, but I interpreted his statement as not being a forecast or a projection of what Russia would do, I interpreted his statements to be more of a precautionary tale of what could happen if the United States continues down this path. And unfortunately, what I have read, it, it's been interpreted as Lavrov saying, this is what we're going to do as opposed to this is what could happen if this reckless behavior continues. Hopefully that makes sense. It does. Uh, and let me address the last part first. Oliver Stone, who knows Putin, who's dealt with him, who's interviewed him at length, uh, he's afraid that the nukes might be a false flag. He's afraid that the United States, whoever, CIA or whatever, would designate a small nuke, blame it on Russia, and what the consequences would be then. Now, I, uh, I think that needs to be entertained. I mean, after all, Oliver is no slouch, and that's a possibility. But I think what Lavrov was saying is what Putin is saying. Look, you guys, this is not like uh, Grenada or Panama. Uh, it's not even like 
Iraq. Uh, we have nuclear weapons. So when push comes to shove, we have the option of using them. Now, why do I emphasize that? Well, because the, the Russians don't usually say those things. The Soviets didn't even say those things. They were always in the background. And so to me, this is a manifestation of how strongly Putin feels about Ukraine, about how the way Ukraine has evolved over the last 20 years is a existential threat to Russia. And I happen to be one that think Putin cares about Russian national security. I think he seems sees a, an opportunity to redress that threat right now. And not least, as I always am careful to say, he has China at his back. And that emboldens him to go clean up that mess now. Whether he can or not is another question, but that's what he's after. And I don't know if we can prevent that from happening without false flag attacks of whatever kind, chemical or even, as Oliver suggests, nuclear. Your thoughts on um, particularly Sweden and Finland, but particularly Finland joining um, NATO? Yeah. Well, I think Scott Ritter has it down pat on Finland. I mean, look at the map, for God's sake. Look how close Finland is to uh, Russia's second largest city, St. Petersburg. I mean, do you want to reduce warning time from what is now about eight, ten minutes uh, with these supersonic or hypersonic missiles to three minutes? I don't think so. And so I think Scott is dead right in saying the Russians are going to do something very demonstrative if it appears that NATO in its, quote, wisdom, end quote, uh, goes this this extra mile and votes to include Finland. I think the Finns are crazy. I think they were right the first time in, in acquiescing in an agreement with Russia not to do this. And I think the consequences are going to be very severe, so severe that Finland finally will back out of this thing. And I hope that's true. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Mint Press entitled, Say No to Censorship. Here's how we're rebuilding alternative media. With the war in Ukraine raging on and corporate media outlets pushing a pro-NATO agenda, we've entered a wartime and having access to alternative information is crucial to preventing escalation. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's the director of Behind the Headlines and Mint Press News and the author of this piece, Munar Adley. As always, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. You write, I have an urgent appeal to make everyone who cares not only for our First Amendment, but for the future of our planet. Independent watchdog journalism that holds the military class accountable is under threat. Uh, your outlet, Mint Press News, has been attacked, been de I'll say, along with other things. 
Talk about what's going on here, but more importantly, why it's happening. Well, as you uh, stated, we've entered wartime with the war in Ukraine raging on. Our mainstream corporate media are once again beating the drums of war and promoting NATO and promoting uh, billions of dollars worth of weapons uh, basically being shipped into Ukraine to act as a proxy against uh, Russia. And so in an era of a declining U.S. empire and with the United States actually losing the information war globally, censorship has become the last resort of an unpopular regime and its forever wars to make the truth disappear and critical thinking all but dead. Um, and right now, because of the crisis of Ukraine, I've, uh, you know, I describe it as wartime. And so now we have big tech giants, including PayPal. They're working hand in hand with new cold, the new Cold War architects themselves, um, the think tanks and the, the, the very people that brought us the current crisis in Ukraine. They are working together to sanction dissenting journalists, including Mint Press. Um, just in the last month alone, um, we were notified by PayPal that our account was banned because it poses a risk. And Consortium News received that message. Um, other independent journalists like Caleb Maupin received that message. And Alan McLeod, I know you've had him on the show. He's our senior staff writer. He received that message as well. And so we believe this is a, an organized, coordinated campaign to target dissenting journalism as we enter this no, you know, this intellectual uh, no-fly zone where any sort of alternative and any sort of uh, investigative uh, reporting that challenges uh, the official narrative of the permanent war state is basically uh, targeted um, in this campaign. And so. Uh, we're not the first, of course. PayPal has targeted uh, journalists in the past. They've they've blocked money from going to Cuba. They've blocked uh, WikiLeaks in 2010 from receiving any sort of donations. And so we're certainly not the first, but it's very clear that this is an organized campaign considering that we have entered wartime. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, having dealt with this censorship and myself and having been exposed to it, one of the things that I felt kind of paradoxically, shall we say, is that the intensity of the censorship shows, demonstrates that there's a greater need for alternative media because alternative media is winning, is being successful. They wouldn't have to go to these levels if they didn't feel that their the, the narratives of war, the narratives of empire and abuse and oppression um, were being were were being successful. I think that the um, the success of, of 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 alternative media and independent media are apparent, and they're angry, and that just shows the more reason for people to get in, uh, support and get involved. What are your thoughts? I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, if you look at Mint Press, for example, I mean, for the past decade, we've been at the forefront of independent media, you know, some of the smaller outlets. We've been unapologetically working as a watchdog journalism outlet to expose the very profiteers of the permanent war state from the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, to apartheid Israel's occupation of Palestine. And, you know, even the Saudi Arabia's genocidal war in Yemen, when there was a media blackout of that, to the United States and NATO's regime change operations in Syria, Ukraine, and Venezuela, where U.S. weapons have flooded these nations to plunge them into devastating civil wars. And so Mint Press and much of the independent media spheres have been fulfilling 
their role in a democracy to fulfill our First Amendment, which is to act as a watchdog to the establishment, to the political establishment, to inform the public um, about these pertinent issues. And so we name the names, we show their agendas, we expose how you know the money that they are making off of these off of these conflicts. And so we became basically a prime target to the censorship campaign. And we are breaking through the propaganda. Um, you know, for the you know since 2016, we have seen a heavy-handed witch hunt take place by these social media tech giants, which are working with NATO-funded think tanks like the Atlantic Council. They're working with uh, government officials, the Obama administration, the Hillary Hillary, uh, Clinton camp crowd to target dissenting voices because we're breaking through. I mean, when Hillary Clinton blamed Russia for her defeat to Donald Trump in 2016 and said that it was Russian disinformation and fake news flooding the Internet, I mean, that's like code word for that's like code language for um, it's it, you know for independent media publishing the truth because we were exposing um, her corruption. Not that Donald Trump is any better, but we were looking at her political background, and so that's really when the witch hunt started. And there is no question that it is the neoliberal uh, class that is pushing this very heavy-handed agenda because they're the they're the very people that are profiting right now off of the current crisis in Ukraine. And not that the neocons are not; they're working together, of course. But it really is like censorship is being pushed heavily, even more um, by uh, the Democratic Party, surprisingly, and uh, by the neoliberal uh, capitalist class. You know, it, it's important. I think I've been saying this a lot in terms of the word censorship for people to really understand how dangerous that is and how unconstitutional that is because the Pentagon Papers case shows us that the government is not supposed to prevent publication. It can punish post-publication, but it's not supposed to prevent publication. And so talk about how dangerous that is. And you also have uh, a statement in your piece. We don't have watchdog media anymore. We have extremist corporate media lapdogs beating the drums of war and acting as stenographers for the government. It is amazing to me when I try to sit down and watch some of the mainstream news and some of the so-called shows that provide analysis, they all say the same thing coming out of the mouths of the same folks, you don't get any intelligent fact-based debate. Yeah, I mean, our our, our corporate media, uh, it produces fast food news that is sensationalized, that is divisive, and it works as a mouthpiece for the two-party duopoly for weapons manufacturers. Um, and I always bring up Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and hawkish NATO-funded think tanks. And so the the role of the media in this country, if we're going to consider ourselves a democracy, of course we're not. We are an oligarchy based on many studies. But if we're going to pretend like we're a democracy, the First Amendment exists to hold the, the, the political class accountable and to provide information that empowers the public so that we can vote in elected officials that truly represent us. Of course, that's not really how it works in this country, but um, that's why that's why it's so important for ind- for the for the survival of independent media because our corporate media uh, they work as stenographers for the for the permanent war state. If you look at organizations like the New York Times, for example, I mean they 
received gag orders from the state of Israel. Many of their uh, correspondents and people that write for them, um, they are spooks that come out of these think tanks that are funded directly from NATO, and they represent the interests of the national security state. And so, you know, we as independent journalists and the people, we can't continue to wait for the oligarchy to give us a media that represents we the people. We have to unite right now on a broader front of nonpartisanship that holds the elite accountable. Um, and we have to create the journalism that we want to see so that we can survive as a nation. Um, otherwise, you know, we have a media right now that's just consistently um, manufacturing consent for the next war. And the United States knows that it's losing <laughs> the battle of information and it's losing on the ground all over the world. I mean, countries are aligning themselves with Russia and China for a reason because they're not cooing their countries. They're not overthrowing their countries. They're not exploiting their countries. They're actually offering to pull people out of poverty to rebuild their countries that have been destroyed by U.S. imperialism. And so the United States, for its only way to survive, is to control the narrative and keep a people here in the United States drunk off of propaganda. Um, I, I would like you to know, every day, that I get up, the first two um, websites I go to are Mint Press News and Consortium Aww. News. <laughs> Every day of my life, I got to see what you guys have. Uh, have one there. That's Thank important. So but let, let me ask you about this. Your thoughts, I'm not going to ask any leading questions. Your thoughts on the now infamous Disinformation Governance Board. Yeah, I mean, this, this is like, you know, the most Orwellian thing that has that has recently been announced, which is the Disinformation Governance Board, the so-called uh, Ministry of Truth that's being um, headed by, I think her name is Nina Jekowitz, I think, and it's going to be led by and overseen by the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that goes against our First Amendment. I mean, this Ministry of Truth, this Disinformation Government uh, governing board um, is meant to, uh, you know, crack down on, dis you know, Russian disinformation. But if you actually look at what the CIA has said in the past, the CIA has recently stated that um, the United States is losing the information war, and that's why they're cracking down. It's, I mean, it goes goes to show that they're so desperate to control the narrative. But it's a mil it's a, it's militant. I mean, this is what George Orwell uh, warned us about a long time ago. And so I think that this could mean uh, a heavier crackdown on independent media and alternative narratives. Um, but this is nothing really new, because if we look at like organizations like PayPal, they've already partnered up and taken orders from the U.S. government to censor and to block, uh, you know, financial uh, finances for organizations like WikiLeaks. I mean, that order came directly from the U.S. government. Um, and that was that really set a dangerous precedent. And so now we might be seeing the Department of Homeland Security directing other big tech organizations to purge and ban other um, organizations. And that's why we really have to call for the breakup of these big tech monopolies um, and for people to rise up and say that, you know, this is not the kind of government that really truly represents we the people. And we have just about a. Um uh, just, we have just about a minute and a half left. What are the two things that you want people listening to this program to walk away from this conversation have a, having a better understanding of? 
Well, I think that no matter the war waged against us, um, you know, we refuse at Mint Press to be backed into a corner and bullied by big tech giants and the national security state um, who directly profit off of the bloodshed of millions of people around the world. Uh, the only way forward is for people to unite on a broader front of nonpartisanship and fund our own media. I mean, I cannot stress this enough. We cannot fall for the divide and conquer tactics of the media. We have to, uh, you know, stop putting our trust in the two-party system and build our own grassroots uh, movement. Big tech giants want us addicted to our devices and to get our news only from our devices and we have to break through even our own addictions by getting off of social media. I mean, it serves a purpose, but we have to get off of social media and connect with people on the ground and build a more united front by connecting with people face to face. And I think that's really, really important. Munar Adley from Mint Press News. Thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The U.S. seems to be having trouble finding Asian countries willing to shoot missiles at China. You think? What was supposed to be a satirical headline is actually just an instance of saying the quiet part out loud. It's pretty obvious to me. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, Dr. Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. So what started out, according to the author of this piece, as a satirical impression of a headline uh, authored by one Raymond Bloodthirst Jr., <laughs> it began circulating around the Internet. Uh, it read as follows, we're having trouble finding Asian countries willing to shoot missiles at China. Uh, but as it turns out, a recent article by the non-satirical RAND Corporation had exactly the same analysis. <laughs> the United States, and it's entitled, in the report, a U.S. strategy in the Indo-Pacific that relies on an ally agreeing to permanently host ground-based intermediate-range missile risks failing because an inability to find a willing partner, end quote. The United States seems to be having trouble finding countries in the region that want to go and swat that hornet's nest. How surprised are you, Dr. Ken Hammond? <laughs> Not surprised at all. In fact, I, I when I first saw that uh, the article, I thought this must be a story from The Onion or something. Exactly. But, uh, it, it just, uh, it certainly reflects uh, the, the gap in, uh, in reality between the United States' efforts to continue to project its power in, in uh, you know, in, in Asia uh, and the, the real interests of actual human countries, people living there uh, who, uh, as you say, they don't they don't want to be poking a hornet's nest. They don't want to be aligning themselves with an external power that 
while it's been able to throw its weight around in that part of the world for a long time, is increasingly irrelevant and, and being marginalized, you know. So the unwillingness of Asian countries around China, with a couple of exceptions, to, uh, to become hosts to American missiles aimed at China, it, 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 it seems like a pretty straightforward understanding. You know, it, why would they want to do that? It wouldn't be in their own interest. You know, they want to be building as, as positive an environment for themselves as they can and not just being converted into the, the sort of minions of American imperialism. Uh, you know, uh, this may not sound nice to some people, but it appears to me that the people in the Asian world in the aggregate aren't as stupid as the Europeans. I mean, to be quite blunt, they're, they're idiots. The people in Europe are like, yes, we will throw away our economy. Well, who cares if we're lifestyle? Hey, put missiles here. We want to be sighted in for nuclear attacks. And now Finland's like, hey, we got a brilliant idea. We will abandon the neutrality that we've had for years and put ourselves in the, in the sights for nuclear weapons. It seems to me that it's just the Asian leaders are, shall we say, wiser than the people who are running things in Europe. Who needs heat yeah. for their homes? Ah, oh, we don't need energy for our factories? Food. Ah, what the hell? Food's overrated, Wilmer. Oh, Ken Hammond. <laughs> have I, have I well, possibly no, stepped over the line here? Oh, I hope not. I hope not. I think uh, I think it's always best to, to, to call things as we see them. The, uh, the, 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 the indications would be that uh, countries in Europe, at least the governments, the, the governing elites in countries in Europe, are more than willing to hitch their wagons to the declining star of, of America. Uh, you know, and there's these recent reports that Finland, Sweden, abandoning what have been decades, if not more, of, of neutrality and trying to maintain some sort of calm, rational place in the world, now throwing themselves uh, wholeheartedly into the arms of American imperialism, inviting NATO in ex exactly this kind of thing. Let's bring in your missiles. Let's, let's make ourselves as threatening to our neighbors as possible, and then get upset when those neighbors react. Uh, you know, this obviously is what's been going on in, in Ukraine, and, uh, and uh, you know, China has been very clear about this is not a good idea. We don't think this is what should be going on. But the United States continues to to conduct all kinds of provocative behavior, not just in trying to station missiles, but, you know, the behavior in the South China Sea, the, the sending of American warships in the Taiwan Straits, all of this, uh, just just this this aggressive macho posturing that American uh, uh, politicians and, and military leaders can't seem to, to get out of their system. One of the things that I took away after f reading this story was it, it made me think about when I was when I was in kindergarten and I had the, the play school set where you put the pieces, the wooden pieces into the right hole. And of course, the adage, you can't put a square peg in a round hole. Well, so in, what I would do is I'd find the square peg and put the square peg in the square hole. What they seem to want to do with U.S. foreign policy is let's just get a bigger hammer and let's just hit the square peg harder and we will eventually force that square peg through the round hole, destroying both the peg and the hole. Uh, <laughs> your thoughts, th this is an incredible, to me, very subtle critique on the failure and long-lasting failure of American policy. 
Well, I think that that we can see this in the in you know also in the context of of uh, current global developments, in the same way that you know the United States. If if you just listen to the propaganda that comes out of the White House or or Congress or the Pentagon, you know you would get the impression that the whole world is united behind uh, America and NATO in uh, in opposing Russian aggression in in Ukraine. But in fact, uh, if you look at, uh, at you know, countries who have signed on, who have endorsed the sanctions the United States has deployed there, if you look at the countries that have abstained uh, or voted with Russia in, in these United Nations votes, well over half, more like 60 percent of the people of the world live in countries that have uh, turned away from that, have declined to sign on to the American imperialist agenda. And I think that, uh, you know, this... This unwillingness of, of China's immediate neighbors, again, with, with perhaps a couple of exceptions, to sign on to the American uh, uh, military posture, uh, it, it's, just, it's just rational. It's just reasonable. China's trying to, you know, make a, a new help to construct a new world order or a new, you know, multipolar order, really, that, uh, that, that is out from under the dominance of, of American power. And its neighbors understand that. That doesn't mean that they want to agree with China on every single issue or they want to totally subordinate themselves. But that's that's not really what China's looking for. But America, you know, continues to see the world as its sort of its turf, its playground, dreaming, still longing for that dream of the end of history and a, and a, uh, a sole superpower world when that's that's not what ordinary people, working people all around the world really want. And so this this story just just is, is yet another manifestation of that. In the Global Times, we read, the U.S. government seems high on playing tricks on the Taiwan question lately. To begin with, the U.S. Department of State removed some terms, including Taiwan is part of China and the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence from its webpage on U.S. relations with Taiwan. Almost at the same time, the P- Pentagon corrected a readout of China's defense ministry in a phone call between Chinese and U.S. defense ministers. Your thoughts on what's happening with these arsonists that they already started one fire in Eastern Europe, and they seem to be trying to go around and uh, throw gasoline and matches in all directions. Well, the Taiwan situation, you know, we've, we've talked about this, this numerous times. It's, a, it's, it's probably really the most dangerous game that, that American politicians and, and military uh, folks are, are playing. You know, this uh, this uh, modification of the, the State Department website and these other, uh, uh, you know, statements and, and, and counter statements and clarifications and all this, they're really, they reflect uh, what is really a very hypocritical uh, approach to, to our relationship with China uh, by the Biden administration, where, you know, uh, last year at the end of, uh, of 2021, uh, uh, Joe Biden had a conversation with uh, uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping uh, in, from China in which he said quite explicitly and quite clearly that the United States continues to support the one China policy and the United States, you know, adheres to the principles of, uh, of the various communiques and joint statements of the Chinese and American governments over the years that uh, there's one China, Taiwan is part of China, and, uh, and we don't challenge that. But uh, while he says something like that when he has to, you know, make a public face-to-face statement with uh, uh, the president of China on the other end of the line, 
the the behavior of the American government has been very much in the opposite direction. This this change of uh, of the State Department website taking out that very critical language is a is a, a, a at least a, a veering away from the principles, the fundamental principles that have grounded the U.S.-China relationship for 50 years. And it's a very dangerous uh, game to be playing. But you know, sending secret military forces to Taiwan. These high-profile visits, even though they haven't actually happened, but, you know, uh, uh, House Speaker Pelosi and, and other government officials talking about going to Taiwan, these are, these are all it's just one little poke in the eye after another that the Americans are deploying against China. And I, I fear that it's part of a strategy to try and get China to make a mistake, to get China to make a misstep. That would then allow the United States to to beat up on China even more. So far, the Chinese have been pretty pretty circumspect and pretty careful about how they've handled this, understanding that this is the sort of desperate flailing of a declining power. But uh, even their patience may may have its limits someday. With your very clear understanding of Chinese mentality, hist- in a very long historical context. Is there something that the American policy individuals are missing? It, because it seems to me that th- there's there's some fundamental kind of historical realities that they just don't understand about this Chinese adversary, and they and it's almost like they're stepping on their tails. Well, I think that the, that the problem uh, for for American policymakers and for for many. Uh, you know, spokespersons, uh, whether it's in, in government or the military or even in, in media or academia, many of the, the spokesmen for the American elites, uh, the, the problem is that, that what they're really doing is looking in the mirror and not so much actually looking at what the realities of China uh, and China's long historical experience uh, have been. China is not has never been, you know, a country that has sought to project its power beyond its own uh, its own territory. It's not a country that tries to take over other countries. It's not a country that tries to, to you know, to to uh, subvert and and undermine its neighbors or or, or other countries around the world. Uh, but that's something that the United States has done consistently throughout its its history, and you know certainly continues uh, uh, to do today. So. I think the problem is that, yes, they're, they're, they're missing a big thing, which is China itself, the realities of Chinese history, the realities of China's uh, uh, current uh, conduct and, and governance, what it is the Chinese say about themselves. The American uh, uh, politicians and all seem incapable of actually listening to what the Chinese are saying, or at least of hearing and understanding what the Chinese say. They're very clear about their objectives. They have objectives in the world. They're not out there to be, you know, the, 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 the planet's uh, uh, welfare system. They're out there in pursuit of their own interests and all that. But they want to do it in ways that will be mutually beneficial for other countries that, that they deal with, you know. And that's just not, that has never been the American way. And, uh, and our, our politicians and pundits, uh, you know, when they when they look at the world, all they see is the, the reflection of, of our own experience, our own practices. Professor Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And as always, sir, we look forward to having you back. Well, it's a pleasure to share in the conversation. 
Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Amazon fires warehouse worker who led Staten Island strike for more coronavirus protection. The company said it fired Chris Smalls after he, quote, received multiple warnings for violating social distancing guidelines, end quote. What does this mean for union movements going forward? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahi. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So following the announcement of the uh, big success in, uh, in with the Amazon in New York, the new union is working to negotiate a contract, a collective bargaining agreement with Amazon, and its members are pushing for a minimum $30 an hour for workers, longer breaks, and eliminating mandatory overtime outside of peak weeks for online shopping. My first question to you, uh, Dr. Tawheed, is... For as much as Amazon wants to say that Smalls was fired for cause, uh, I would think the dominant mindset is it was an act of retribution. And what message do you think that's sending to the Starbucks workers and other similar employees who are now trying to unionize uh, within their workspace? Well, well, we can see in the Starbucks situation that um, Starbucks is is responding directly to Starbucks employees' um, unionization efforts by firing them. That that has been um, 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 complaints have been filed with the National Labor Relations Board that that is illegal uh, for them to do that, and I expect a, a judge to to uh, force Starbucks to rehire these these fired workers. Uh, now, at the time that Chris Smalls was was fired uh, two years ago, uh, Amazon, at least in Staten Island, wasn't in the process of, of unionizing or or, uh, or planning to unionize. But 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 Chris Smalls was involved at that time in in talking about uh, the Staten Island plant uh, unionizing, and so I think it it obviously falls under the same situation that uh, that uh, Amazon was trying to preempt unionization at the Staten Island plant by by getting rid of the leader of, of the union movement. The fact that that has succeeded and with with Chris Smalls no longer being uh, an Amazon employee, it succeeded. Meant that that the uh, the uh, workers, at least the majority of the workers at the Staten Island uh, facility, also uh, were were upset and um, were were fighting back against Amazon, uh, engaging in anti-union activity. Uh, we've seen that happen at the Bessemer plant in Alabama, where where uh, they they voted once and um, uh, lost. The workers workers were not in the majority to build a union, but they were able to appeal to the National Labor Relations Board because of anti-union activities 
by Amazon, and and so another vote is in, in process. We don't know how that vote's going to go. It's close. But in Staten Island, the vote is, uh, uh, well, it's it's still close. It's, it's 55% to 45%, but it is a majority. And so that plant will be unionized. Uh, you know, I, in looking at what's happened over the last couple of years with COVID and the economy, I tend to think that this wouldn't have had, that th- these unionization movements would not have had se- success had it not been for the difficult times, particularly when you look at, uh, and this something is interesting. When I look at C- Chris Smalls, I see a guy in sweatsuits and a baseball cap. He looks like an Amazon worker. He looks, he's dressed. He doesn't have on a suit and tie and all that kind of stuff. He looks like the regular person that would be working in Amazon. And it seems like the very difficult times these last couple years have motivated people who are working for 10 or $15 an hour to kind of rise up. What are your thoughts on a connection between the economic um, troubles the last few years and what appears to be the rise of a new union movement? Well, I, th- I think, yeah, I think the economic troubles, uh, particularly through COVID and through the um, the um, um, uh, m- many, many employers, in fact, not uh, doing what they could do and what they needed to do to to help protect employees health has, has certainly added some fuel to this to this labor movement. I think one thing that's that's a difference between, let's say, uh, Staten Island and Bessemer, Alabama, is that for for decades uh, the the anti-unionization process or movement of thinking has been has been going on in the South uh, with um, with uh, large corporations building factories in in southern southern states, but but requiring or uh, that that workers not even think about unionization because union is government involvement and and of course if you're in a conservative red state. Then, then government involvement, at least federal government involvement, is not something that you want. So that that's a difference, I think, in the mindset of workers in Alabama as opposed to workers in in New York. But we do see uh, a a rise of even the union uh, movement in southern states, in red states. And so I think I think uh, I think you're right that that part of that impetus is is COVID in the last uh, two 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 years of of workers having to work under under threatening conditions and their employee uh, employers not being um, taking that seriously. Does it signal anything to you when you look at Amazon, when you look at the type of companies that are now being uh, subjected to unionization, a lot of them don't make anything. We're now moving into the service industry. We're moving into delivery companies. I mean, Amazon doesn't manufacture anything. Uh, Starbucks doesn't manufacture anything. D- does does that say anything to you about where we are in terms of labor in this country? And is there anything that we can uh, project in terms of the future at, because no matter how many times Donald Trump says it, no matter how many times Joe Biden says it, these manufacturing jobs are coming back. Yeah, well, you know, more than 80 percent of the economy is is in the service industry. So if uh, you have the majority of employees who are in service and uh, they're getting um, uh, not to, their, their, their working conditions are, are deplorable, that's where you would expect unionization to come back. Uh, manufacturing is is few and far between and uh, and uh, so there there are not a lot of workers or at least a smaller percentage of workers in that area uh and so i would expect unionization in a mostly service economy to happen among 
mostly service employees. Questions about uh, the current state of affairs with our economy. There are a couple of things. We've got a 40-year high in, um, it's been reported that we have a 40-year high in inflation. Meanwhile, the Fed has determined that they're going to have to continue to raise interest rates, which appears destined to heave us into an even quicker into a recession as if we weren't always heading for one. What are your thoughts on the inflation rate, the causes, the the Fed's moves, all that together? Well, the typical way uh, for the said to think about inflation is that the economy is overheated, that there's uh, too much demand, that people have too much money uh, for the quote, normal supply, that, that for some reason, for example, through COVID um, uh, um, uh, money that was pushed out into the economy uh, to, to help the economy recover, that that was too much. Therefore, there's too much demand uh, with, with uh, too few goods. Uh, what is typically not thought about is is this type of, of economy, which is not excess demand. Uh, there might have been excess demand in the recovery uh, from COVID, but, but that, that money is, is long spent. What we have now is a shortfall in supply. Uh, supply chain, for example, is the crisis is causing a, a shortfall in supply, as well as climate change, which is causing a shortfall in food production. Uh, we, we, we have, a, we have a, a shortage of baby food, and we don't have a shortage of baby food because people are buying too much baby food. We have a shortage of baby food because baby food manufacturers are producing less baby food. There's a shortage of supply. And raising interest rates doesn't, doesn't help a shortage of supply. In fact, it will make it worse because it will make it more expensive for manufacturers to actually produce more more um, more product because it'll, if they need to borrow money to expand their production, that money becomes more expensive. And so what the, the, the typical tools that the Federal Reserve has, has in raising interest rates to deal with inflation is exactly the wrong thing to do right now. What we need is a policy to increase the supply of things, not to decrease the demand for things. And that comes from from federal government, what we, what we call fiscal policy, federal government spending to promote supply, to, to promote production, as opposed to raising interest rates to decrease demand. It's exactly the wrong thing to do. Well, when you look at people like Cecilia Rouse or Jared Bernstein, who are economic advisors to the president, or, or Janet Yellen, they're supposed to be, anyway, pretty smart folks. So... I can't see them not understanding what you just explained. So that would then indicate to me that they're protecting other interests. They're not really looking to implement policy that works out for the for the average American. They're looking out to protect somebody else's interests. Am I wrong to think that? And if so, Whose interests are they protecting? Well, I think certainly the Federal Reserve is has a mandate to protect the interests of of, of banks. Uh, the Federal Reserve is the is the lender of last resort. It lends to banks and other financial institutions. And inflation is not good for for lenders because the money they loan when it's repaid is is paid is is worth less uh, because of, of inflation. <clears throat> but of course, ordinary people are also hurt by inflation because the money that you receive in income buys less and less and less. Uh, but, but uh, you, you know, the, the interest of the banks 
is what the Federal Reserve is is uh, mandated uh, to to um, to look out for. Although it also has a mandate to to address uh, employment, so that its its policy of raising interest rate is not supposed to uh, increase unemployment. Uh, although it, it, it's difficult when, you, when the Fed is doing that aggressively, when it's raising interest rates aggressively and is planning to do that, uh, we can expect that the unemployment rate will rise and we'll end up in a situation as we were in in the 1970s and called stagflation. Now, certainly these economists uh, are, are well aware of the 1970s stagflation situation, uh, but but the, the Fed, if the Fed is driving this policy uh, uh, particularly in the short term, the, the political short term of doing something now, uh, the Fed can, can increase interest rates and maybe people will think that that's going to bring down inflation. In fact, in this situation, it'll, it'll make it worse. While we have a Congress, for example, that is voting billions and billions of dollars to send to Ukraine, uh, that, that Congress is not able to vote billions and billions of dollars to build U.S. infrastructure in manufacturing. That's difficult, more difficult to do. It's easier simply for the Fed to raise interest rates. So it's the easy way out, but it's not the right thing to do right now. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Shireen Abdul-Akleh has been assassinated. Israel's record of killing Palestinian journalists continues. 83 Palestinian reporters have reportedly been killed by Israeli forces since 1972. Folks, I didn't think that members of the press were supposed to be targets uh, for assassination, especially by government entities or interests. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me, and uh, my condolences to uh, the family of uh, Shirina Abakhle and, of course, to all the family of journalists across the world for um, losing such a um, cornerstone of television news production in the Arabic world. She's been an anchor, uh, a stone, cornerstone of uh, Palestinian television broadcasting for the last 27 years uh, since she started her career uh, prior to even being on Al Jazeera. She was shot and killed by an Israeli sniper Uh, Yesterday, as she arrived to cover a dawn raid in the West Bank city of Jenin, and um, there's a a long list of Palestinian reporters that have been that have been killed by Israeli forces. Israel has for decades been uh, has documented killing and maiming of journalists. Uh, 
police and armed forces have beaten and fired live ammunition on journalists covering the unfolding events, particularly following the attacks on the Alaska Mosque and Israel's deadly bombardment of Gaza. Uh, Laith, you're, you're a journalist. A lot of people may not really understand that journalists and also, for example, workers of the Red Cross, they're, they're, they're supposed to be off limits in, in areas of conflict. That's why they wear helmets that say press and vests that say press. You're not supposed to shoot at the press. Yes, and uh, this is was a deliberate assassination. Okay, you know, uh, she was amongst a group of uh, many journalists. They were nowhere near any uh, armed conflict happening. They were visible to the Israeli troops and they communicated uh, visually with them uh, to confirm that they were, you know, spotted this group of journalists, six, seven journalists that were together uh, with their camera crews and so forth. And um, she was wearing her vest and a helmet, as all the teams around her were. Everything was visible. And the sniper shot her through her ear. This was a deliberate shot to go into a part of the uh, helmet that is not covered uh, in your head. And, uh, you know, they shot another journalist uh, and missed his heart by... Uh, inches. And, you know, so they were targeting to kill. They knew exactly who Shirin uh, Abu Akhle is and uh, her value and, and her presence in the Palestinian um, communities, especially Jenin, because she was covering live the invasion of uh, Jenin camp in 2002 and, um, you know, has a, a, a personal relationship with the refugee camp and the city of Shenin that, you know, are uh, considered um, some of the strongholds of resistance in the West Bank. And uh, it's clear that uh, the Zionist wanted to punish. And, and you know, what's, what's um, sickening about this beyond the assassination itself is how the Zionists, after the assassination, basically pissed on her grave by running around making claims that Palestinians killed her and then withdrawing it while smirking six hours later after the media was flooded with their propaganda, hateful propaganda, and then, of course, smirking and saying, well, we're going to investigate it ourselves. Ultimately, this was a psychological warfare uh, operation that has two, had two intentions. One of them is to uh, you know, bring down the spirit of Palestinian people, and the other because of this, and the other because of the first objective of this operation, which is to uplift the spirit of supremacy and impunity in the Zionist colonist population, because we know these colonists, if they don't feel that they have impunity to genocide Palestinians at will, they'll pack up their bags and leave. This is the most essential 
a social contract between the colony and its uh, citizens. And if uh, so, uh, what we will see, you know, you know, this this awful behavior of the Zionists is going to continue because they feel that the end is near of their project. Their supremacist project is failing and they can't keep it going except with, uh, you know, more and more hate, more and more genocide, more and more crimes like this that are brazing. What have you heard as far as um, what are you hearing about the reaction on the street in the in the Arab world, the, the reaction throughout the Arab world? I mean, the reverberation of this assassination uh, have have been humongous. Uh, within minutes after her assassination, practically everybody in the refugee camp of uh, uh, and and the city of Jenin came out on the streets with and marched her body to the nearest church because uh, Shirin Abakhle is is a Christian Palestinian. And here you have, uh, you know, the the masses of the Palestinians carrying her into a church and then carrying her to Beit Lahem and to Ramallah and to uh, Nablus uh, and going to all those churches, Muslims and Christians walking with her. And ultimately she is a, a born in Jerusalem and she will be buried there. Yeah, today, yes, uh, there was earlier a national um, uh, funeral led by quote-unquote President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. And uh, she will be buried in Jerusalem. Yesterday, the Zionists um, at- tried to attack her family's home in in Jerusalem. And, of course, uh, they, they were chased out by the residents of the neighborhood. Imagine now what will happen when she, when her body reaches Jerusalem uh, to be buried there, and the the what will happen on the ground if the Zionists attempt to stop the the body from reaching its uh, final resting place. Um, uh, we saw Al Jazeera, who who are the Qatari foreign you know affairs basically, uh, which which for decades now have been giving a platform to Israeli and Zionist officials to speak on Al Jazeera in Arabic and Al Jazeera English. We saw for the first time all the journalists of uh, many of the prominent journalists of Al Jazeera making statements publicly saying that they will refuse to host any Israeli or Zionist uh, officials on their shows. So this is having reverberation to inside Qatar and its uh, most prominent tool of foreign influence in in the world and in the Arabic world, uh, you know, and 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 you know, so things are on the edge because of this assassination. We don't know where, what things, how are they gonna unfold uh, tomorrow, um, and and as as the body reaches uh, Jerusalem. You've used the word assassination, and. People need to understand a that you're a journalist, uh, and so you, you, you. This is not a term that you would use lightly. Uh, Palestinian journalist Shata Hanaisha was with Miss Akle when they came under fire in Jenin, and she says what happened was a deliberate attempt to kill us. Whoever shot at us aimed to kill, and it was an Israeli sh- sniper that shot at us. We were not caught up in the crossfire. 
with Palestinian fighters like the Israeli army claimed. Uh, there was no fighting at the time. Uh, elaborate on that a little bit so, so people really, and when you say, well, two things. One, <clears throat> when you say assassination, you mean assassination. And then also, is there anybody, is there any journalist that you can think of whose name would come to mind that you could compare her to? I mean, uh, look, uh, it's very clear the videos uh, of the whole incident are there. You know, and the, the shooting was filmed. There's clear evidence of where the shooting was coming from, who was shooting at them. There's no debate. To reiterate, she was not the only one shot. No, she wasn't. Like, there, you know, multiple people got shot. Uh, six at least people got shot, journalists, and one of them almost died because the the bullet missed. Uh, alhamdulillah, thank God, he uh, you know the bullet missed his heart and uh, by by inches. So they were aiming to kill these uh, journalists because the Israelis are planning an invasion of Jenin refugee camp. And they wanted to take out the most prominent Palestinian journalists that have historic relations with the camp and know all its details and can get the information from it and can make a good story. And uh, because the last time when the Israelis invaded the camp, it was a massacre. And the media covered it live. And we saw Israeli tanks demolishing, uh, going through little, small alleys and demolishing buildings as they're going with the people on top of under hundreds of people. We And that was only possible because of journalists like Shirin. Um, and um, of course, they are don't want her and her nuisance, quote unquote, when they try to invade uh, Jenin again. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, this is arrogance, uh, but it is also desperation. Uh, the Zionists constantly find themselves in situations where their options are worse than each other. And in this situation, uh, if they wanted to invade Janine uh, by killing uh, Shirin and, and silencing supposedly some of the journalists, now it's going to be practically impossible to invade uh, Janine, a refugee camp, and the battle make uh, happen the around the body of Shirin right now after her death, as she's being just the act of attempting to bury her may actually bury Israel if the Zionists stand in the way of uh, this woman reaching her final resting place uh, in her ancestral homeland. I'll ask you this. How do you think this is going to affect the leaders of various Arab countries that have, uh, Muslim countries that have, uh, you know, kind of signed accords and agreements with Israel? I mean, today, the Qatari Amir was in uh, Iran and was signing uh, new deals with Iran and speaking about uh, making sure that no um, problems in the region uh, are solved with the um, presence of foreigners, that uh, only regional powers should solve uh, the problems of the region. So we can see already 
you know, the effects of this and the effects, of course, of the American withdrawal at large from uh, Western Asia unfolding. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. We have a great evening. You too, thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in Responsible Statecraft entitled How a Cottage Terrorism Industry Made a Lion Out of an Al-Qaeda Mouse. A new book puts together documents uncovered at Osama bin Laden's hideout and finds the roots of a 20-year threat inflation. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former CIA counterterrorism officer and a former senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, a law designed to punish spies. He served 23 months in prison as a result of his attempts to oppose the Bush administration's torture program. And he's the host of Radio Sputnik's Backstory, John Kiriakou. As always... Welcome back. Thank you, sir. Good to be back. So the piece opens in 2008. Glenn Carl, formerly the CIA's deputy national intelligence officer for transnational threats, warned in The Washington Post about taking fright at jihadists. They were, he contended, small, lethal, disjointed, and miserable opponents. And the lead group, al-Qaeda, had only a handful of individuals capable of planning, organizing, and leading terrorist organization, a terrorist organization. And although they have threatened attacks, its capabilities are far inferior to its desires. In her new book, Nellie Lahoud, a senior fellow at New America, has gone through this huge collection of information and basically said that uh, that Glenn Carl was right and that what we now find ourselves dealing with is a result of U.S threat inflation. John Kiriakou, you chased a lot of these bad guys and caught a few of them. Your thoughts? Uh, I agree completely. I I agree with the conclusion of the book, and I agree with Glenn Carl. Um, I know Glenn well. Uh, He was a career counterterrorism officer at the CIA. He was, for a time, in charge of the the torture program, and then had a a moral crisis of conscience and uh, retired early and came out against torture. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, that made that, that, that sort of came to the front of my mind as I was reading uh, this article in Responsible Statecraft about the new book is when, when we led our first batch of raids, uh, I said to a colleague, this was in Pakistan in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, I said to a colleague, this is the fearsome al-Qaeda? This is what we've been so afraid of. These are children. Half of them were crying. They asked us if they could call their mom, you know, to say they've been captured. Oh, it was, it was shocking to me. Now you've got this, this core leadership at the time that was somewhere in the region, either Afghanistan or Pakistan, 
true believers, hardcore terrorists, real bad guys. But but the fighters themselves were just misguided teenagers. Certainly nothing that that we thought they were at the CIA. You know, uh, John, what's interesting is this was a whole this whole thing was self-serving. And I was in law enforcement um, uh, doing a lot of stuff at the same time here in the States. And I saw the same thing. I remember going out to little teeny towns like on the side of a mountain in Western Maryland to talk to the people about terrorism. And you had people that thought that Al Qaeda or bin Laden was going to attack like they didn't even have a little downtown with three stores. And they wanted me to talk about how they could protect that from terrorism and I'm thinking it took me an hour and a half to find it I drove through the town three times before I realized it was a town yep that's the truth yep bin Laden will never get yep. but it was the mindset from what they were hearing on television that you've got to be scared bin Laden's under every corner and what ended up happening was state after state spent millions and hundreds of millions of dollars on anti-terrorism stuff that was all just a self-serving racket your thoughts I think that's exactly right. You know, you you guys remember code orange, threat level yeah. <laughs> orange, threat level yellow, and, and people were running to Home Depot and buying duct tape to seal up their, their windows and, uh, and the tops and bottoms of the doors because we were expecting some kind of chemical or biological attack from, from Al-Qaeda. Well, there was never any such uh, interest. You know, at the CIA at the time, we used to talk about this threat inflation, which is a real thing, because we would get, for example, uh, we would get some lunatic who would walk in off the street to, let's say, I'm just pulling this out of my hat, the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City. And the guy would say, uh, I want a visa to come to the United States. Well, you you have to apply like everybody else and go to the consular section. Well, I have information on terrorism. I'll give it to you if you give me the visa. Okay, what's your information? Al-Qaeda is going to uh, launch a biological attack on Cincinnati. Okay, well, you know that the guy just made this up off the top of his head. But the law on, on reporting, on intelligence reporting, says that you have to write it up and put it in the system. And you can't say, I don't believe him. That's up to the analysts. But then after 9-11, the CIA came up with this thing called the threat matrix, which was sent to the president every morning as part of his morning briefing, the president's daily brief. The threat matrix was an Excel spreadsheet that had literally every threat in the world that had come in overnight, whether it was from a lunatic or from an intercept or from a bona fide vetted agent. And there was no way to tell from this threat matrix who the source of the information was. And so you get on the spreadsheet, uh, Al Qaeda is planning a, a biological weapons attack on Cincinnati. And that's all you know. You don't know that it came from a lunatic. And so the information goes to Homeland Security. They raise the threat threshold to, to orange. There's a run on duct tape at Home Depot and everybody goes crazy. And then, Congress has to appropriate another $50 million for Homeland Security because, by God, we have to protect Cincinnati. We went through that for more than a decade. There's a statement in this piece. It also appears that bin Laden's strategic vision for the attacks, 9-11, was profoundly misguided. Uh, As Lahoud extensively documents, he believed it would be a decisive blow that would result in Washington's withdrawal from the Middle East, but it had 
the opposite effect. And then years later, the piece says that he, bin Laden, returned to the self-deluded belief that this he would wind up bleeding America to the point of bankruptcy. And I think that second thought, even though it's hard to bankrupt somebody that can print their own money, he was on the right track there. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, perhaps if he had lived another 20 years, he might have actually <laughs> succeeded. But, um, yeah, we, we believed at the time that that he believed he could push us out of the Middle East. Before 9-11, he began spreading rumors in interviews and interviews with prominent outlets like Al Jazeera, for example, that um, that. American women in the in the military in Saudi Arabia were driving cars in violation of Saudi law, that they were having sex with uh, Saudi men, that they were going into Mecca and Medina, which is forbidden for non-Muslims, and they were having sex at the Holy Kaaba, right? His, his, his allegations were getting more and more outrageous. And then he thought, well, there's no uprising in Saudi Arabia when people are hearing this, uh, to push the Americans out, if we attack the Americans, maybe that will push them out. And like the article says, it had the opposite effect. We ended up uh, building a permanent bases in the in the uh, in the Arabian Peninsula that we had never had before. I mean, really, the only permanent bases we had were uh, the headquarters of the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. And uh, we had an airbase outside of Dahran, Saudi Arabia, and that was that was it. But we added bases in the United Arab Emirates, in Qatar, in Oman, several in Kuwait, and then bases all over Saudi Arabia. So it really did have the opposite effect. Well, I once heard it said if that uh, it that if uh, if I'm paraphrasing, but if the dangerous jihadis didn't exist, we'd have to invent them. And John, yeah, and I'm sure you've heard similar threats. But here's the terrible thing: so there was a, some guys in caves in 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 um, Pakistan or wherever the heck, and we invented this gigantic threat, so we had to spend trillions of dollars to stop them from doing whatever they were going to do. Now today, there is actually a threat of nuclear catastrophe because of what's going on in Ukraine, and rather than admit that diplomacy is the way to get out of it, we've got like articles in Wall Street Journal literally saying we can't be afraid of nuclear war. Now, we got to be afraid of some guy watching porn in a cave, but we don't have to be afraid of nuclear annihilation at 8,000 degrees. Please explain that to me, John. You're exactly right, Garland. And this is something that I have never understood. I first noticed that there was that there was a group in the American foreign policy um, apparatus that was trying to put forward the notion that we could survive and thrive after a nuclear war. It was at the time led by Pat Buchanan, and it was seen as an extremist view. Well, now, as you point out, it's, it's on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, this is a mainstream belief now that a nuclear war can be limited. You're right. We spent, what, $3 trillion directly, $20 trillion indirectly over the last 20 years? Uh, on uh, on counterterrorism and, and associated programs, or whatever the numbers are, I know it's three trillion directly. Um, and for what we should be spending that money? First of all, on infrastructure, and second, maybe to train more diplomats 
to get out there and do the job of diplomacy so we don't find ourselves in these positions year after year after year. The piece continues. There was, of course, a great deal of alarmist warbling by the media and by self-interested terrorism experts, administrators and politicians. But it is probably best to see public opinion as the primary driver of the process, while experts, politicians and media were inclined, as is their want, to supply their customers' needs. I take a little issue with that. I, I think the public... The, the public opinion was fanned by these experts and politicians and by those who saw the monetary gain uh, and also the ideological gain that that uh, that this that 9-11 provided the opportunity for uh, and that had there been some voices of reason on the other side, more voices of reason, clearer voices of reason saying, wait a minute, folks, because now what I see here, John, the terrorists won by the fact that we now have turned on our own constitution and the government is, has turned on the people. I think the terrorists won in the long run. Your thoughts? I, I have to agree with that. You know, we live in a country now where you, you, you can't, you know, walk through a metal detector with your shoes on. Uh, we live in a country where the uh, federal government uh, uh, wiretaps literally every American uh, without a warrant. We live in a country that Ed Snowden warned us about, one where literally every one of us is a target uh, f from the government or by the government. We've lost our civil liberties. It's been 20 years after the fact. There's no hope of getting them back. Every year, the so-called Patriot Act comes up for reauthorization, and every year it's reauthorized again. After 20 years, the article made a, made a point that since 9-11, we've had hundreds of millions of people enter the United States from foreign countries, and millions of people enter illegally, and not one single one of them was smuggling an al-Qaeda terrorist. Has it really been worth it? I would think no. And with that, John uh, Kiriakou, as always, we greatly, greatly appreciate your time. We appreciate your analysis and your clarity, as always. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for handling this uh, important issue. I think this is something all Americans should be concerned about. Well, and we knew you were the one to talk to us about it and, and helps help uh, sift through it. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Ormanoco Tribune reports President of Bolivia refuses to attend Ninth Summit of the Americas if there is exclusion. This past Tuesday, Bolivian President Luis Arce Catacora announced that he will not attend the Summit of the Americas if nations from the region are excluded from the event. For insight in this, we turn to our next guest. He's a professor of Latin American studies. He's an author. He's an activist. Uh, professor Danny Shaw, as always, Professor Shaw, welcome back. Good afternoon and honor to be here. 
So Arce writes, consistent with the principles and values of the uh, uh, plurinational state of Bolivia, I reaffirm that a summit of the Americas that excludes American countries will not be a full summit of the Americas. And if the exclusion of sister nations persists, then I will not participate in it. He added that his nation bases its relations on diplomacy with inclusion, solidarity, uh, complementarity, respect for sovereignty, self-determination, and collective construction of a culture of dialogue and peace. Talk about the significance of our say taking this position, particularly in light of the hypocrisy of Joe Biden talking about respecting sovereignty and democracy, but excluding countries from a summit of the Americas. Yeah, and this is nothing uh, new in terms of the United States and their imperial arrogance for them to try to dictate who is worthy of invitation to these uh, international summits that have all these euphemisms like Summit of Democracy or Summit of the Americas. Um, Lucho Arce speaks not just for Bolivians, but for uh, this new Bolivarian tide across South America. Uh, 16 CARICOM nations have, are saying they're not going to participate. I think the total now in the hemisphere is 22 nations that won't uh, participate. And I think also uh, very important is uh, Mexico and AMLO, Lopez Obrador, and his attitude. He's not as to the left. He's not quite the staunch anti-imperialist as a Lucho Arce or a Nicolas Maduro. But if Mexico can, can, can neutralize all of this aggression against the Bolivarian camp, uh, it's very, very uh, uh, important. And AMLO's been in Cuba paying respect to, respects to the Cuban people and everything that the Cuban Revolution has symbolized since 1959. And that's why they're not invited either. So it's real simple. If you're not a lackey and uh, a sellout, a uh, neo-colony to the United States, then you're not worthy of invitation. And let me say this, from the looks of things, even if you are a sellout and a lackey, you still can't go because President Bolsonaro is saying he's not going, he's not planning to attend and he won't come out and say, you know, why. But I think part of it is this. He's running against Lula. He's like 20 points behind and he can read the handwriting on the wall. It is the United States is um, persona non grata in that part of the world. And even a guy who in the opinion of many, the United States helped cheat to get him in with that Operation Car Wash or whatever it is. I think it's the most telling one I've seen now is that Bolsonaro won't show. Your thoughts? Yeah, the contradictions are uh, everywhere. I mean, Bolsonaro is not uh, protesting in any type of principled anti-imperialist fashion, quite the opposite. It's kind of similar to all of these uh, Republicans. This vote on the $40 billion uh, quote-unquote aid package to Ukraine, which is just $40 billion going towards proxy warfare against Russia and um, any forces within the Ukraine that question U.S. hegemony and question uh, NATO. So um, there are the contradictions. Uh, the Democrats are the ones in lockstep with the U.S. imperial project in uh, Ukraine. Uh, and how many uh, dozens and dozens of Republicans have become the the voice of saying that this this money should not be um, squandered uh, uh, in these imperial missions. So I think that's one way we can understand how such a right winger, 
pseudo-fascist like Bolsonaro would take this stance. Oroco Tribune has another story on Venezuela, only hawkish, quote-unquote, dissent allowed. It's a, and this story was written by Ricardo Vaz. And Ricardo writes, another NATO war means a media establishment in a propaganda frenzy once again. Corporate media outlets have cheered Washington for throwing fuel to the fire in Ukraine, with some demanding that the administration escalate yet more. Be it though, be it through their choice of pundits or their own reporters haranguing White House officials for not sending enough weaponry, one thing is clear enough: elite media will only criticize official foreign policy for not being hawkish enough. Uh, talk about how the narrative is being propagated and promoted uh, by the media instead of being analyzed by journalists. And one of the things that just jumps out at me in this context as it relates to Venezuela is the fact that after all of this time and all of these efforts to overthrow President Maduro and to just arbitrarily uh, place Juan Guaido as president of, of, of Venezuela, the United States had to send a, 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 a delegation to Venezuela with hat in hand begging not, um, not, uh, not Guaido, but begging Maduro because he is the president of Venezuela for oil, and it's it's not it's not being analyzed in that manner in Western media. That's exactly correct. Uh, the truth is always uh, concrete. They didn't call upon Juan Guaido to these uh, secret meetings. Uh, they were forced with their you know tail between their legs to uh, suck it up and go meet with the uh, democratically elected Bolivarian government. Um, after how many years of trying to strangle Venezuela, demonize the Bolivarian anti-imperialist uh, leadership. Uh, it's not uh, officially been stated yet, but it looks like maybe they'll try to have Juan Guaido um, participate uh, virtually uh, via Zoom. Um, and the European Union no longer recognizes Guaido. U.S. foreign policy towards uh, Venezuela is uh, weaker than, than ever. Um, every time another country, uh, another economy swings back to the left or even to the center left and Alberto Fernandez government in Argentina and AMLO in, in Mexico, uh, what, what, what looks like what should be a very, um, resounding defeat of fascism in Brazil in in October with a victory for, for Lula. All of this means more diplomatic channels, media channels, and most importantly, economic channels open up for uh, Venezuela. It's going to take several years to to rebuild Venezuela. All of the damage done since the Obama era 2014 sanctions really, really hit. It's going to take some time to undo that. But I think those are the Bolivarian wins, and that's what what we can see happening right now across the continent. We had reported last week that Russia donated 19,500 tons of wheat to Cuba, free of charge. This week, we're reporting that Iran has committed to supply fuel to Nicaragua and said that its vision for the bilateral relationship is not solely economic. What do you think about the way that um, some anti-imperialist nations, the larger nations around the world, have been working with the Latin American nations to keep them afloat? I think that's the essence of uh, the 21st century and where human history is at at this point. Um, the future is increasingly a multipolar 
multi-centric uh, future and um, for Venezuela and Cuba to be at the center of that, um, all of the, the, the suffering, what they've had to uh, go through, the economic blows, the diplomatic blows against their people for daring to chart a new way for humanity. And they have the right to uh, trade with whoever they want. And um, they have the right to meetings with, with Washington if they can find a, a market there. Um, but certainly the assistance that has come from all of these, these different countries, um, the Iranians, the Russians, China, the Vietnamese, all of these uh, countries that are not in the pocket, in the grip of imperialism, uh, I think what's very frightening right now because the death knell of imperialism has been founded, but it's not going to be automatic. Uh, it's not going to be delivered by uh, FedEx. It's going to be a, a bloody process. Now Sweden and Finland are saying that they're going to join uh, NATO. And this is just going to provoke more of the ear of the bear to the east, to Russia. So the immediate future uh, is very, very intimidating, daunting, scary, though in the long run, certainly uh, multilateralism and, and world peace is on the horizon. I was just wondering, what do you think happens if, if they have the Summit of Americas, if the countries that are protesting show up? It seems as though there's going to be a whole shift in tenor and tone, in policy, uh, that it, it'll it'll be apparent that the United States empire has lost its grip on the region. I think that's what we're going to see in uh, Los Angeles and in Tijuana. We're going to see tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of union members, women's liberation organizations in defense of uh, women's right to uh, their, defend their reproductive health. Um, we're going to see all types of immigrant rights organizations on both sides of that artificial border, that, that really border of, uh, of, of shame and ignominy that, that symbolizes what, how many years of colonialism and centuries of colonialism and neocolonialism have done to the peoples of, of the South. So uh, early June is going to be a showdown between empire and the peoples of, of the world. Uh, people are going to be congregating, coming from all across the world to, to stand in favor of this multipolar project against Biden, against uh, U.S. hegemony. If you could just give us your thoughts on the current state of affairs in Haiti, because I know you do a, cover a lot on that. The situation in uh, Haiti um, is very difficult. Uh, the Haitian comrades uh, want to make an appeal to the true international community, not the uh, international community as defined by imperialism, the trifecta of evil, the United Nations, the U.S. government, and the Organization of American States. That is not the international community. community. The Haitians uh, have, have been in the streets. Um, one of the main struggles now is for a just uh, minimum wage in the sweatshops that dot Port-au-Prince and across um, Haiti. Uh, repression has not ended. Um, a year ago, there was this massive uh, movement against neoliberalism, against Jovenel Moïse, and it was a very united 
uh, movement in the streets of, of Haiti. I was there from uh, on and off from February until July when Jovenel Moise was killed. So one petty tyrant was taken out, but an entire system of petty tyranny of neocolonialism continues. Uh, so the Haitian comrades remain strong, uh, setting that example of, of struggle and unity and that legacy of the 1804 revolution is alive and well in Haiti. Professor Danny Shaw, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And I know you worked us into a very tight uh, circumstance and schedule. We really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you for all of your work. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Mint Press entitled, Jesus, Endless War, and the Rise of American Fascism. The Democratic Party is hoping to thwart an election route by running against the expected Supreme Court decision on abortion. This is depressingly all that is left of its political capital. How prophetic and profound is this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, where he served as a Middle East bureau chief and Balkan bureau chief for the paper, previously worked overseas for the Dallas Morning News, Christian Science Monitor, and NPR, and he's the host of the Chris Hedges Report and author of this piece. Chris Hedges, as always, welcome back. Thank you. I'm very glad you wrote this piece because last week when the uh, Supreme Court uh, leak on uh, Roe v. Wade came out, Garland and I were saying that the Democratic Party seems to have stumbled into a break on this because of the galvanizing effect that this whole thing was having on a lot of its base, who I believe uh, was was really – less than enthusiastic about the midterm elections. And so talk about your perspective here and why uh, you see the Democratic Party as hoping to thwart an election route by all of this. Well, it's the only issue they have, but they don't have a good track record. Uh, the, the Democratic Party had 50 years to codify Roe v. Wade into law. Uh, Carter, Obama, uh, Clinton all had majorities. They could have easily passed it. In fact, uh, Obama said that it would be the first piece of legislation he signed, and then he never got around to signing it for a year. So, uh, and then Biden himself, he supported the Hyde Amendment, which uh, prohibited federal funds to be used for abortion, and then he supported a push to allow states uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade and impose their own uh, restrictions on abortion. So, uh, once again, the Democratic Party is, and then, of course, they have this kind of vote, uh, symbolic vote, which they know is going to pass because of the filibuster. Uh, it's, it's all image over substance. Meanwhile, we can't fund the Build Back Better bill. We can't pass the uh, pandemic relief bill. We do nothing to 
uh, fix our decaying infrastructure or address the very real suffering that is rippling through the working poor and the working class. But we hand uh, $40 billion uh, to Ukraine, and you know that's only the start. Uh, that, that's half of what uh, Russia spent on its military, entire military budget last year. So uh, it's endless war. Uh, this has been true for 20 years in the Middle East. It's endless profits, obscene profits for the war industry, Raytheon, uh, Northrop Grumman, and the rest of them, who are making a killing now off of this war. Uh, and uh, and it's this trajectory where our country is being hollowed out from the inside uh, by essentially a corporate duopoly that the behind the uh, walls of the Potemkin village erected by the Democratic Party stands the billionaire class. And we know that because we now have a fusion of the traditional Republican establishment with the traditional Democratic establishment. So all of the neocons, the, the pundits, uh, the, the Kagan brothers, and Victoria Nuland, I mean, she was uh, Cheney's uh, uh, chief foreign policy advisor. Now she's working for Biden. Uh, it, it's a crossover. The Bushes, the Liz Cheney, uh, Mitt Romney's, they're all fused together against this proto-fascist cult-like uh, following much of it uh, with strong roots in the Christian right, Christian fascists, and I say that as a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, and, uh, that, that has coalesced around Trump. Uh, but it isn't going to work. Uh, you know, figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, obviously she's a nutcase and un unhinged and clueless, uh, but she's weaponized because they're so angry at what's been done to them, She's a cruise missile, a political cruise missile aimed right at the heart of this discredited power elite. And it should be discredited because lie after lie, NAFTA, uh, deregulation of the FCC, destruction of the welfare system, all that was done under Clinton, uh, the assault on civil liberties by Obama. The Obama administration was worse than that of the administration of George W. Bush, the ripping down of the firewalls, the financial fraud, uh, where Goldman Sachs was uh, giving people massive mortgages, uh, subprime mortgages. Uh, they didn't even have to present personal ideas, ideas, or they only had to lay down 1%. And then, of course, they sold all this garbage to pension funds and uh, municipal funds and uh, uh, insurance companies, and it, of course, it all blew up. It, 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 people, as Goldman Sachs knew, because they bet against it. And what happens? We bail out Goldman Sachs every penny on the dollar. Uh, so, the, so the whole system, and and the response of the far right, of course, is frightening. Uh, but the anger and the uh, is, and the rage, and in particular the Democrats. I mean, figures like Biden, Clinton, uh, the lies they told did far more damage to. Uh, the uh, well-being of uh, especially white Americans. We talk about black and brown Americans because it's another issue, the form of social control. But they did far more damage than any lie uh, told by Trump. And, of course, Trump lied like he breathed, but so does Bill Clinton.
Let me ask you this. You mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. One of the things I've been noticing on Twitter lately is that the people who have been pushing back against the $40 billion and against the, you know, unhinged policy of confrontation with Russia lately are Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and J.D. Vance. They are the, the Trumpian Republicans. And when you look at what's going on, it seems to me that the Democratic Party is setting up a, an, a, a dynamic where people are going to say, well, these people, their policy is unhinged, but your policy is unhinged and it's going to result in the extermination of all humankind. I think I'll go with that kind of unhinged as opposed to yours. That they're setting up a dynamic when people really get furious and really feel the pain of this upcoming stagflation, that they're going to be set to, to grab power. In fact, Noam Chomsky recently commented about Trump having the only sane policy regarding Russia when Trump said we should um, we should you know end it with some kind of a democrat uh, diplomatic dialogue. Your thoughts on that particular dynamic and how that plays into this? Well, Chomsky's right. I mean, I was in Eastern Europe in 1989. I covered the revolutions in Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, we all naively thought that NATO was now obsolete. NATO was created in 1949 to counter Soviet expansion into Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, there were promises. I was there. There were promises made to Gorbachev that NATO would not be expanded beyond the borders of a unified Germany. And now, what is it, 14 countries? And of course, it's a billion-dollar bonanza for the arms industry because these countries have to refit to NATO equipment. And let's be clear, Ukraine is a de facto, at this point, NATO country and was before the Russian invasion, which doesn't excuse the Russian invasion. It's an act of uh, preemptive war, which under post-Nuremberg laws is a criminal act of aggression. I'm not excusing it, uh, but it, there are historical antecedents. And I, I think understandable reasons why Moscow is is enraged and frustrated, because promises that were made in 89 and then later by the Clinton administration, they wouldn't station NATO troops in Central and Eastern Europe. We now have 100,000 NATO troops. We have a missile base in Poland that's 100 miles from the Russian border. So uh, that, again, you know, Moscow was baited. Uh, that, that's clear. But in the end, Moscow pulled the trigger. So, uh, I mean, they are guilty. But what's the policy? So the policy is a proxy war, a classic Cold War playbook technique uh, to pump staggering sums of weapons and money to sustain the war, to bog Russia down the way it was in Chechnya or go back to Carter and Brzezinski's policy over Afghanistan. Uh, but it's very cynical because who's going to pay? Well, in the end, it's the Ukrainians who pay. Their country it will be wrecked. Uh, the, the, the catastrophic loss of life uh, the, the, the displacement and the refugees. Uh, but that's the policy. But I think like Afghanistan, uh, there's no end game. I, I don't see that these people have any clear idea where this is supposed to go other than, as, as the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said, it will cripple and hurt Russia. Uh, I mean, that's not an end game. That's a tactic. Uh, and then we're flirting, as you correctly point out. I covered wars for 20 years. All sorts of things happen that you don't expect. Uh, you know, the, you, you have a heavy infusion of arms shipments coming in from NATO countries, uh, and Russia has threatened to strike those shipments. Uh, there have been Ukrainian strikes against energy facilities and 
arms facilities inside Russia itself. Uh, you know, they, they struck, uh, Russia struck a military base that was only 12 miles from the Polish border. So things can go wrong uh, if Putin uses a tactical nuclear weapon. What does that mean? Uh, you, you don't, uh, you don't, once you open that Pandora's box of war, and I speak from personal experience, you don't control it. It controls you. So, yes, we're flirting with something that's exceedingly dangerous. Uh, and also, there's no, I, I don't see any uh, rational explanation for what they're doing, other than the fact that, of course, they want to hurt Russia. You write establishment Republicans and Democrats like George Armstrong Custer on Last Stand Hill have circled the wagons around the Democratic Party in a desperate bid to prevent Trump or a mini-me Trump from returning to the White House. And you just talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. But what find what I find very interesting is how they are circling the wagons around the party while ignoring the real interest of their base. Well, yes, because, of course, as I said before, they are uh, they are essentially they serve the interests of their base, which is the billionaire class. And what we have really at this point is a battle between billionaires squabbling like big kids in a sandbox over multi-billion dollar toys, space rockets and Twitter and God knows what else. Uh, there's an alliance with Silicon Valley with the Democratic Party. I mean, the whole censorship of six years of my show that was on RT America on contact were erased, disappeared from YouTube. Not one of those shows was on Russia, not one. Uh, but they are going, the Democratic in particular, the liberals, and they've had hearings in Congress where they're calling in these CEOs of Facebook and, and asking for more censorship. Uh, so they, they will go after the right and the left. And the only common denominator is that they're critics of the Democratic Party. Uh, and that's not a tactic. Erasing that kind of criticism doesn't make the unjustifiable, I would argue, rage go away. Uh, and, uh, and, and the dirty quid pro quo is that the people carrying out the censorship are these large media uh, digital platforms, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, uh, and, and the Democrats will not break up their monopolies, as they should, uh, in exchange for that form of censorship. It's a really frightening. And now we've seen PayPal lock uh, antiwar.com. They lock Consortium News out of their own accounts. All the tactics they used initially uh, against WikiLeaks are now being employed against critics. Uh, and I think the common denominator with antiwar.com and Consortium News is that they question the uh, the you know the the uh, massive support for uh, Ukraine. Question the narrative being fed to us on the Ukraine, or well, isn't even our war? I mean, so, yeah, it's a very, very uh, frightening moment. And, uh, and if we go back to Weimar, Germany, there were very stringent uh, hate speech laws. Uh, so Goebbels spent time in jail. Stryker, who ran the Nazi newspaper, Der Stormer, spent months of his life in jail, constantly censored. Uh, of course, in the 20s, the Nazi party was even outlawed. But it didn't, what it does is turns them into martyrs, which is why I oppose taking Trump off of Twitter. Uh, what you're doing is turning these people into martyrs uh, rather than addressing the social and economic dislocation, which has caused the political deformities that we are 
grappling with. I covered the war in Yugoslavia. Again, many parallels with that. Chris Hedges, as always, spot on. Thank you so much for your time. Greatly, great. This is a phenomenal piece. Greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Great. And the original source is chrishedges.substack.com. That's where it originates from. Thank you, sir. Folks, you've You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 